Hello, and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast series. I'm Scott Miller, and I serve as your host and interviewer each week. Three years now of, gosh, close to 170 episodes on Franklin Covey's video and audio podcast, the largest leadership podcast globally. And I was compelled about a year ago to approach HarperCollins Leadership, the publisher, and said, we have such profound insights to share from this podcast series, would they be interested in sponsoring publishing a book? And they jumped on board immediately, and now that book is available for pre-order on Amazon called Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds. I was privileged to be the author for Franklin Covey's recent book, Master Mentors, where I selected 30 of about the first 75 or so podcast interviews and dedicated a single chapter to each of these 30 guests in a, a insight, a transformative insight from each of them. I love it if you pick up a copy of Master Mentors. It is a easy, breezy ride through 30 transformative insights, many of which perhaps will remind you of things you already knew but perhaps had forgotten or weren't implementing in your life. Or perhaps I've positioned something from one of our 30 first guests that might hit you fantastically at the right time in your life Master Mentors, I think, is going to be a great annual recap of 30 insights from across our series. Appreciate you showing interest in the book. Today, our guest is Dr. Don Graham, who is a career expert, the author of the book, Switcher. She is the director of the Career Management Program at the Wharton Business School. She is the author of a very popular weekly career podcast and radio program on Sirius. Dr. Don Graham joining us today for On Leadership. Welcome to our conversation. Thank you for having me, Scott. Glad to be here. Great book. We're delighted today to talk about all things career development. You've written this book called Switchers. You are a renowned expert, coach, advisor on career development, when to disrupt, when to switch, when to cling, when to stay. And today we're going to have a broad, wide-ranging conversation about insightful career tips that anybody at any phase of their career, whether they're in the C-suite and they're thinking of disrupting themselves and becoming an entrepreneur, whether they're just out of college or they have skipped college and they're thinking of entering the workforce, we're gonna have a great conversation. Don, would you take a few minutes and sort of uh, talk about your own journey, your own PhD, and how we have kind of come today to talk about this book called Switchers. Absolutely. Well, I'm honored to be here, and uh, we are certainly in an interesting time in the marketplace. I've been in talent management for about two decades in a variety of roles from recruiting to assessment, coaching, and I'm also a licensed psychologist. And I took all of those backgrounds and experiences to put together switchers because what we're seeing in the market over the past two decades is a lot of changes. And these changes are only accelerated now that we are coming off of the pandemic. So Switchers is, is a very timely book because even though it was written before the pandemic, I think what we're seeing now is a lot of people taking a look at their careers and their trajectories and deciding that they want something different. Now, the hiring process hasn't quite caught up with this just yet, and that's where Switchers comes in. It's really how to position yourself to demonstrate your qualities to the profession that you're changing to. Don, I think you're being both humble and gracious when you say it's a lot of people. I think it's every people. Like, I think it's every person. I don't know of a person around the world that right now isn't reassessing their values post-pandemic. They're not reassessing what they want out of their career, what they want their legacy to be, how they are 
valuing different parts of their career, and they're not perhaps reassessing, are they working in the right organization? Are they aligning their passions and their skills? Are they balancing their time? I think everyone is in this sort of tsunami of transition where, where uh, LinkedIn is you know, exploding in terms of recruiters and, and competition poaching. I think your book is insanely well-timed right now. And let's talk a bit about what it means to be a switcher. Kind of unpack that title and that moniker, if you will. Absolutely. So what it means to be a switcher currently is changing industries or changing functions or changing both. So essentially anything that strays away from the, the quote unquote traditional job path that people may have followed years ago. And I do think that switchers are going to become so normal that even the term is going to go away, which is, is exciting. But for right now, um, companies are still looking to buy talent. They want people who have done the exact experience. And so if you are making a switch, it's really important to one, assess how big of a switch. So the book really talks about the, the different, different difficulty levels and then create a strategy around that type of job search. And of course, the further you stray from the traditional path that people are used to seeing, the uh, more challenging it's going to be, which is why it's so important to create a strategy that addresses those hurdles that you're going to face in the market. Don, nicely said. Just this morning as I was walking into the set here, our podcast studio, which is both video and audio, is on site at Franklin Covey's global headquarters here in Salt Lake City. We're now a you know, work-from-home-first company, but we still have people that are coming to the headquarters for a variety of functions. And as I walked in the, the, the building, there was a young man who I recognized that works in one of our divisions, and he announced he was leaving the firm. On good terms, his own choice, found a new job in a different organization for different motivations. And he was kind of lamenting that he hadn't been here this long at Franklin Covey. I asked him, how long have you been here? He said, two years. And I said, congratulations. I said, you've made it you know, at least four months past kind of the average for your age group. I think it was Whitney Johnson, the author of the book, Disrupt Yourself, I think several years ago said the average career for a millennial Gen Xer is about 18 months. He actually had extended that I think the times have changed, have they not, from my generation. I'm older than you are. I've been at Franklin Covey for 25 years, coming on 26 years. My father worked for his company for 32 years. That used to be seen as a badge of honor. In some cases now, it's kind of a badge of shame, right? It's like, did you have no options? You know, <laughs> did nobody else want you? Talk a bit about, um, talk to the leaders that are listening. The, the leaders of people that are watching, listening to the podcast, what should their mindset be right now? What should their expectation yeah. be on the average tenure of this you know, increased population in the workforce? How, how do they make sure that their perhaps old school thinking doesn't help to accelerate or shorten the average tenure of someone? Yeah, well, learning is the name of the game now. Everything is changing so quickly that if people feel like they are no longer learning, and it, and it, it could be a very short amount of time, they're going to make a move because they know that agility, adaptability, and new skills, adapting skills, 
morphing those skills to fit changes in the market is so critical that if they're in a company where they're not getting any type of learning opportunities, which can come in the form certainly of, of internal training, external training, on-the-job projects, new opportunities to work with different groups, different people. But if they're not getting that stimulation, I think I think the they're smart enough to know that they have to go find that. They have to, as, as Whitney mentioned, disrupt themselves because they're soon going to be in a place where their skills are obsolete. I think the last statistic I heard was that skills currently have a five-year half-life. And as quickly as things are moving, if you are not investing in your talent, they are going to find a way to stay relevant and marketable, even if that means leaving. Don, I don't know if this is the opposite of a switcher, but in your book, you write extensively about a term you call an identity clinger. Mm -hmm. What is an identity clinger and is that a good or bad thing and, and how do we know if we're, you know, identifying with that moniker? Yeah, so identity clinging, especially in the U.S., we get very, very intertwined with our careers, so much so that when we introduce ourselves, it's often followed by the company where we work or the job title that we're in in the moment, and it becomes just part of us. And when the current economy is is calling for switchers and people to, to make moves where you have to basically reinvent, that can be a big deterrent for people to see you in a new way. So I think we need to stop looking at ourselves as, as a title or as a company or even as a field or an industry because over the last several years, we've seen many fields merge to become hybrids. We've seen many people create portfolio careers, which, which include a number of, of different streams of incomes. And we're going to see more types of companies merging and looking for skill sets that no longer defined by a, a simple title or box or field. So we have to start looking at ourselves that way too. And if we cling too much to the identity that that I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, or I'm, I'm, you know, this one thing, it's going to be really difficult to see yourself in new ways and see how you can apply your skill sets to an ever-changing market. So, so in this sense, identity clinging can be something that holds you back from really fulfilling your potential. Don, you are well credentialized, right? You're the author of this book. You host a podcast on careers, a radio program on careers, nationally syndicated. You lead Wharton's career development program for their MBA school. Talk about side hustles. Maybe speak to that, you know, Fortune 10,000 organizations. I don't know of a person in my life that doesn't have a side hustle. It might be a farmer's market. It might be a coaching business. It might be an eBay business. These are people that have, you know, big careers and companies and they have side hustles. What would you say to chief human resource officers, business unit leaders inside big organizations that have employees and the employee has or wants or is interested in a side hustle? I know that every company has different perspectives. Is there any sort of progressive thinking that you think company leaders should be viewing their employees' side hustles through? Yeah, I think it should be encouraged because you're only growing your skills, you're growing your network, you're bringing those skills back to the organization. And I know the concern is if you're focused on something else, then you can't be 100% focused in our organization. But but I think humans are complex. Humans are not are not single dimensional. They're multidimensional and they have many interests. And for many, 
having a side hustle and the ability to do things that are of interest to them outside of work is what actually keeps them coming and happy in the workplace and engaged because they have that freedom. And I think employers need to start looking at, at people as the full spectrum of, you know, children, family, interests, hobbies, other things, because the fact is that people are going to continue to pursue this. And if you put too many blocks on them, they're going to pursue it outside of your company. So I think it's something that we all need to be more open about. Certainly you all can have policies and regulations around it and, you know, maybe not using company equipment and things of that nature. But, you know, I think people should be encouraged to learn. And sometimes the best way to learn is to create a side hustle. I couldn't agree more. I think there obviously is a fine line between, you know, having a side hustle in your own company's industry, right? Or like you said, you know, being distracted. But if we agree that the average lifespan of a career is about 18 months right now, and on the outset, it might be 36 months in any one particular role. Whitney Johnson, again, talks about what she calls the S-curve of learning, that after about 36 months, people tend to get bored. They've mastered their job, the challenge stops, and they may not know it but their colleagues see it, right? Perhaps in their lazadaical um, or just being bored. I think it's vital for leaders to be challenging their own mindsets around, could empowering, encouraging one of my team members to have a side hustle, keep them engaged, to stretch their learning, perhaps even provide them learning that I can't in my business or in my business unit. I think it's great advice. I think it's um, uncomfortable for most seasoned business leaders of my age to understand how could you do both, right? I think it's um, going to be an imperative. Let's pivot to um, Career Search 2021. Uh, Let's talk about resumes, applying for jobs, accidental versus deliberate career strategy, something I'm very passionate about. And that is I think that way too many career professionals leave their careers to chance, right? They're either on Indeed or they're on Monster or they're on some kind of career board kind of looking for six-figure jobs that are 30 miles from my home. I think that's idiotic to do that because that's the most idiotic accidental career search there is versus being much more deliberate. How would you advise people if they're looking to perhaps change industries, grow their skill set, be aware of what you call loss aversion. What, what courage would you perhaps inspire our listeners and viewers if they're thinking about becoming a switcher? Yeah, I think first and foremost, you really have to understand why you're doing it and what you're looking to get out of it. And I think if if you're you're running from versus running to, everything's going to look interesting. Everything's going to be different and new, and it's going to be really difficult to discern the best path for yourself in the current time. And it's also going to potentially end you up in a situation that isn't the best one for you. So I think first and foremost, we all have to kind of stop, take a step back and reflect on where we are in life now. What are our values today? What is what is going on in our lives that's important to us? And you know, one of the the topics of the time right now is the the hybrid working situation and companies asking employees to go back and they don't want to go back and you know the the great reshuffle that's supposed to happen because of this and i think you know for those people who have enjoyed working from home and can be productive doing it um you know ask yourself is this is this something that is worth making a change to another company or is there a middle ground so i think it's it's not about just making snap decisions or you know making a change for change sake and let's just face it the last year has 
been very, very challenging and unbearable in different ways for different people. So taking into account that we're coming out of it, it's very, very common. It makes total sense that people just want to change and do something different and kind of spice up things. But, you know, before you do that, make sure you assess and ask yourself, where is this going to get me? What is my life going to look like in this new position? Talk to people who are doing it and make sure what you're looking at is in essence going to create the situation you're, you're envisioning in your mind. Don, what advice would you give a job seeker that was going through the kind of uh, the standard process of applying to an organization as it relates to resumes and keywords and algorithms. You know, you hear about companies now getting, you know, thousands of applications for a single job, sometimes tens of thousands. What practical advice could you give people to make sure that they're aware of that algorithmic process of scanning resumes and such? Are there any tips you would offer to kind of give someone a, a leg up? Yeah, you can get, you can really drive yourself crazy with this. And what I would say is as you divide your job search, look at how much time you're spending networking versus scanning the job boards. It's it's so seductive to scan the job boards and it's so easy to apply. In many cases, a couple of clicks, a couple of uploads and you've applied. But what we know is only about 2% of those applications lead to actual interviews. So while you're feeling productive uploading your resume and applying to these companies, it's probably not going to be as fruitful as you hope. So what I would say is this is a great time to start talking to people in your industry, start building your relationships, start reaching out to people, maybe dormant contacts you haven't talked to in a number of years, reconnecting and making sure people understand what you're looking for, because I think most people want to help you but often we we don't make it easy to help us so we're either unclear about our goals or we don't share them in a way that's helpful for other people to understand so what i would say is you certainly can look at the job boards for for ideas um, to see who's hiring but if you're going to apply in a job board 100 percent find somebody who works there to to tell you one is this even a real job and what i mean by that is so many companies are hiring from within so they're posting jobs online that you might feel are perfect fit for you but they already have a pre-identified candidate so here you go through all the steps when the job wasn't really available um, other companies are you know looking for the perfect candidate, the purple squirrel we call it, and um, you know so they keep looking and looking and looking because they want to buy the perfect talent. So if you're a switcher, this is going to be a really difficult transition if you're only using online resources because chances are you won't get in front of the hiring managers, which is why you need to have somebody inside that organization who can refer you, put your resume in front of the decision maker, give you a referral, so that you can at least get to that discussion. So I know it feels very productive to be just applying online, but I, I would implore people to use the majority of their job search time, building relationships, having conversations, and finding out what's really going on in the companies they're targeting. Dawn, this is such a valuable conversation because I think a lot of job seekers are kind of naive to the politics of hiring and, uh, and jobs posted. I, I, I interviewed recently uh, an executive recruiter and she said that about 75% of all positions aren't even posted. They're like, mm -hmm. they're not publicly posted. They're you know, in the CFO's head or they're in committee or they're on a whiteboard in the recruiter's office and they're maybe not officially posted. I also read where between 30 and 
of all jobs are actually filled through networking, right? Through someone that you know. Are there any other sort of inside insights that you would remind people? Things like, you know, it may not be a real job. It's just there because legally they have to post it for three days or five days to satisfy federal law, which is legal. What other sort of behind the scenes insights would you share with our viewers and listeners to say, hey, guys, get a grip. These four things are brutally true. Here's what you need to know to make sure you don't waste your time or become disenchanted or disappointed. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if the audience needs more convincing, if, if there's a, a popular statistic about uh, you know, 40% of hires come from referrals, which are only 7% of candidates. There's another great statistic that over 90% of people who get referred by a director level or above, um, you know, get an interview that, that leads to hire. So there's a lot of evidence out there for networking. And what I would say in the current market, as it's so competitive, it's critical right now to have that insider build trust because just to kind of flip it and look at the hiring manager a couple of things that that i think is important for the audience to know is one most hiring managers are not trained to hire and that's not a slight it's just the fact that many people have probably hired and i would say very few of them have gone through at least eight hours of training probably even four hours of training which means that they are um you know they might not be as skilled as asking you the right questions as you might think they are the other thing is they they you brought up loss aversion so loss aversion is the human tendency to avoid losses um, much more than seek out gains so if you think about that in the hiring process they would rather take a less risky candidate who maybe wasn't the the top candidate than someone who's a switcher who feels a little bit more risky to them so the reason that networking can really help here is because if you have a referral from somebody that they know or trust or inside the organization that reduces that risk so that they're more willing to speak with you because now they have a testimonial of sorts so i think you really have to put yourself in the mind of the hiring manager and i have a whole LinkedIn course on this because it's so critical to think about what they're trying to do. They want to get this position filled as quickly as possible. Interviewing, looking at resumes takes them away from their day job. So if you can convince them either, you know, in, in conjunction with a referral and through how you present yourself, that you're going to make them look good. You're not going to need a lot of handholding. You can do this job. You're going to get hired. Let's go deeper into networking because that that means different things to different people, including introverts and extroverts. It's no secret that after 25 years as an employee of Franklin Covey, almost 10 of which I was an executive officer, I stepped away from the firm about nine months ago. Uh, the CEO and I talked about it for several years. We had a very amicable kind of separation, and I am now an advisor to the company as a contractor. Uh, and in that process, I realized, you know, my network was more inside the firm than it was outside the firm. I had spent 25 years being really networked in a global company, but almost primarily inside a global company. And so I realized I need to build a network outside of the firm. The CEO wanted what's best for me and I wanted what's best for the firm. But for, for several years before we decided that I would separate, I started to build my network because, you know, you have to build your, dig your well before you're thirsty. What, would, what advice would you give to people tactically on, you know, someone perhaps that's been in a company for 10 years or 20 years or however long, and they're not naturally perhaps a people person or outgoing, or they might be an introvert. Are there some tangible must do things 
to fulfill the networking requirements so that they actually align with how a significant portion of jobs are now filled? What are the top things you need to be doing to build your network? Yeah, well, I can relate because I'm an introvert and I actually did my dissertation on how introverts and extroverts approach the job search through networking. And I think there's a couple of things. One, you have to find a way that's comfortable for you because if it's not comfortable and it's anxiety provoking, you're not going to do it. So there are a number of things that might appeal to somebody who is an introvert versus an extrovert. And you have to find what works for you. I think one of the best strategies is is starting with the people you know. We have all built relationships with people in our community, maybe alumni from our university, maybe um, neighbors, family members, extended groups that we, we participated in associations with, plus our company, not just our current company, but past companies. And I think we need to nurture these relationships and keep them going because we've done the hard part. We've met people, we've built trust, we've, we've built some type of, of mutual relationship. And I think when it comes to a job search, this is a great group to start with because you've done the hard part. I look at ambassadors, I call networking is, is you know, using ambassadors um, as two things. One, somebody you've, you've built a relationship with and they're willing to spend their social capital on you in the form of an introduction, a testimonial or what have you. And two, it's somebody who is, um, has an understanding of what you want to do. And I think that's the part we often miss is the people who are closest to us don't often know what we want to do, don't often know what we're targeting. So they they are very much willing to help us, but we're not making it easy for them. So, so simply saying, hey, I don't know if you know, but I'm actually in a job search right now. And these are the three companies I'm targeting. Wonder if you know anybody in those companies. You're going to be shocked at how many people have have connections for you. And so I think going back to your dormant contacts, reopening the door, asking them what their goals are for the year and how you can help, and then sharing your goals is one of the best ways to start getting those introductions and expanding your network. Don, of your many roles, you serve as the Director of Career Management for the University of Pennsylvania Wharton Business School. So obviously you have a strong interest in graduate degrees and making sure that these individuals at Wharton move into great careers. But you also kind of philosophically in the book challenge that earning an advanced degree may not always be the right career transition for someone. You write to this, uh, what have you learned about the criteria of when to know, do I need to perhaps step out of the workforce and earn a degree? When is the opportunity cost right? Should I do it simultaneously? Riff on that concept for those people sure. who might be thinking about advancing their skills through an academic advanced degree. Absolutely. I, and I, I am obviously I have an advanced degree. I'm very pro education, but it has to be for the right reasons, because especially today, it's expensive. Um, a lot of the, the programs out there don't give you experiential hands on type courses that you need. So I think you really have to look at the investment of time and money versus where you want to be. And a lot of people think that the degree is a first step because it'll teach me a lot about this and I'll, I'll be able to get a job. But quite frankly, hiring managers don't hire people with degrees. They hire people with experience. Now, a degree can give you the you know, philosophy, theories, even language and even connections to get to where you want to be. But you're still going to have a, a, a difficult job search on the tail end of that because you're going to be asked how you applied what you learned because that's what you're going to get hired on. So in many cases, a degree isn't 
going to get you where you want to be. So you have to ask yourself, is there another way? Can I create an internship for myself? Can I create a, a side hustle for myself? Can I get a certificate that incorporates experiential learning in the evenings while I'm working to get that type of, of background that an employer is looking for? But I think you really have to start when you're thinking about making a career change is looking at the industry. What is the employer looking for? What does your audience want? Who do they hire? What types of things are they hiring for? And ask yourself, is that degree going to be a core piece of that? Or would you be better off spending that time and money doing perhaps volunteer work for, for a nonprofit to learn how to do data analytics or to learn how to manage the social media marketing? Because that's gonna be a lot more powerful than saying, I took a class on social media marketing. Don, any advice you would give someone perhaps that's my age, that's you know in their 50s, maybe even 60s, they've still got a decade or two or more left in their career. They're experiencing ageism in the workforce and interview process because you know in many cases they might be uh, paid much more than someone that's more junior than them that could do almost as much or as good or in some cases better work than they could. And they're finding themselves being kind of boxed in for a variety of reasons, their skills, their age, any number of reasons. What advice would you give to someone that's looking to transition, looking to be a switcher, but they feel like they're not maybe entering the crescendo of their career, but they're on the, you know, the shady, shady side of the, the day, so to speak. Uh, what would you say to them? Yeah, I think things need to change on both sides. If, if we're all gonna agree that the average tenure in a job is two to four years and that the the company's changing so quickly that um, we're all gonna kind of have to reskill after that. I think first and foremost, a lot of that bias comes from, well, you're not gonna be here 10 years. Well, guess what? No one you hire is probably gonna be there in that role for 10 years. So I think there needs to be that piece of it. The other piece of it is um, that Yes, let's just face it. There are fewer jobs at higher levels. Obviously, companies want to pay, you know, market rate, but not above. So if they can get that talent for less. So I think what what, um, you know, people with a lot of experience bring to the table is the ability to work with a variety of different communications tools, the ability to use their past experience to make good judgments, the ability to, to really adapt to different companies in different situations. And so they really have to show that. There's always the, the thought that, oh, they're not gonna be, wanna learn technology, they're not going to you know, wanna do things differently or they're gonna have an outside interest. All these biases that hiring managers, let's face it, have for everybody, they're looking, the hiring process is about elimination, not selection. So they're always looking for something. You're too expensive, you're too this, you're too that. So I think um, if you bring a lot of experience to the table, you need to show how that's going to have an impact on the bottom line. You need to show, even before you get to the job interview, how you've been reskilling and upskilling and staying current in the market. Because if you know what somebody is going to be biasing against you, then you can actively work to uh, make sure when you present your brand and your, your resume, your LinkedIn profile, that you're actively combating those things. Don, one of the biggest mistakes people make in the career search interview process that hijack them becoming the final hired candidate. 
Yep. I think it, the biggest thing is they fail to rebrand. They fail to uh, look at their audience. Every single time you're in a job search, every single time you're in an interview, you have to look at your audience, what they value, what is important to them, and demonstrate how your skills can solve those problems. And I think a lot of people, again, going back to this identity clinging, feel like their most impressive skills. So what got them where they are today is, is what the person wants to hear. But that may not be the case, especially for a switcher. Somebody wants to hear what's most relevant, not necessarily what's most impressive. So you need to come through your background and pull those things to the front and center. And that can be a little bit uncomfortable if what you're switching to is not your, your core expertise, because you, we always feel like we want that, that armor of this is what I do best, but now I want to do this. And it has to be the opposite. You have to be relevant first. I always say this, match first, stand out second. So you have to get their attention and a lot of people fail to rebrand themselves in this way, which means they don't even get the shot to interview. Flip the script for a second. Therefore, beyond what you just said, are there a couple of practical insights that anybody can implement in their career search, in their resume, in their LinkedIn profile, that a small change could have a disproportionate uh, positive impact on them focusing and getting hired? Anything you've seen that says, wow, everyone should be doing this because this is what helps you, you know, match or differentiate yourself. Yeah, I think, I think everybody needs to get to know their audience. The first step of any kind of application process should be get to know your audience. And in your resume, I, I'm a very big fan of the, the top profile statement because you can bring up front and center things that maybe you did two jobs ago, but are most relevant to that audience member. And if you remember that the process is about elimination, not selection, meaning if you get 2000 resumes, I can only bring in 10 people to phone screen and then two people for the final interviews, thinking that process and thinking, what on my resume, what are my interview answers, what are my profiles going to get me eliminated and work to rebrand that, then you're going to get further in the process. And then what I would say is at the end, you want to show them why you stand out. And switchers have a great ability to do this because they often bring skills that are very different from a tra traditional yeah, candidate. Right. But if you don't match first, you're not gonna get that opportunity to stand out second. So use, use things like the summary in LinkedIn, use things like the headline in LinkedIn, use that space on your resume very wisely. And if you need to, you might have to take some things off. You know, Maybe you have three different degrees and three different things, and you might think to yourself, this makes me very versatile. But a hiring manager is not going to think that. They're going to assume that you don't know what you want to do. So you have to really look at the perspective of your audience when you're putting together your job search campaign. Don, let's end on this final conversation, right? In your role as author, as director of career development at Wharton, as a podcast, radio host, coach, advisor, speaker, all things, all careers, right? One of the world's most preeminent experts on the career search. Um, let's pivot. Let's talk about the hiring leader, the person who's in the position who's interviewing candidates. What should they be doing? What do they need to know about what people are looking for? Because in many cases, you'd say that, you know, it's sort of a buyer's market right out there right now is that, you know, there's an enormous amount of power, if you want to call it that, from the prospective employer. There's a war on talent. Perhaps it's a, a um, global war on talent. Any advice you would give recruiters, hiring leaders to say, this is how you appeal to the top talent. Here's what they're looking for. Anything bubble to the top? 
Yeah, I would say people want the opportunity to learn and grow because they know that if you're stagnant in this market, you're not going to be very marketable for your next job. So that doesn't necessarily mean they need to get a promotion every year, but it does mean that the organization invests in its employees in ways that helps them expand their skills and has managers who look at performance reviews as more than you know a simple checkbox exercise, but actually gets to know their employees and invests in them that they, they give, um, they treat people like individuals and give them opportunities that align with what they want to do versus saying, this is our peanut butter approach and everybody does this. I think we all need to be more agile as we move forward. And as leaders hire people, they need to understand that um, you know, you're not just hiring for the next six months or the next year of, of what priority you have. You're hiring somebody into the company who you want to be adaptable and agile and you want to do other things in the company. So I think we the leaders have to look at hires as, you know, in terms of ability, not just what you can do today. So, so that potential is something we need to get better at hiring for. Don, the very title of your book, Switchers, indicates that this is kind of a common place now. This is not like an anomaly. It's not someone who is disloyal. This is a fairly mainstream profile of people now that want to switch and grow their careers. I'll end with this thought. One of our 30-year associates at Franklin Covey is a friend of mine and colleague named Marian Phillips and was the backbone of Franklin Covey for many decades. And she said something to me that was profound. Amongst many things that she said, that was why she said that send-offs are more about the people who stay than those who leave. Meaning when someone announces that they're going to leave, as the, the manager, stop taking it personally. Stop feeling that they're divorcing you. Is that everybody is watching that still is staying, how you are treating the departure of that person, right? Make sure that you are excited generally about their departure. Encourage them to go seek and sow their roots and learn all they can and bring it back to the company a couple of years from now because everybody is watching how you choose to either, you know, kind of smoke that person out or be generally mm -hmm. excited about their career growth. What would you add to that in terms of how leaders can and should treat switchers that choose to move on? Yeah, I think there's there's a handful of companies who are doing it right and they have they actually have outplacement type uh, services for employees because they know they want to go other places and they know they're going to maybe land at their vendors or their clients and they know that they might boomerang. Boomerang is when you go back to a former employer that you may have worked for several years ago. So I think I think when you have great talent, you need to look at it as a long-term investment. Even if they don't stay with you, they may end up as a partner to you in another organization or they may end up as a referral source to you. And so we have to look more strategically at talent and I 100% agree. Sometimes the best people in an organization are lost because they don't feel like they have the ability to go to their manager and say, you know, I'm really wanting to grow in this way or I'm really wanting to work over in this department. And they just assume that's not going to be an open conversation. So their only option is to leave. And if you want to change that, you have to create a culture where it's okay to talk about different career paths with your manager without the risk of feeling like now you're going to, you know, be on the short list for layoff. Don Graham, author of the book Switchers, How Smart Professionals Change Careers and Seize Success. Thank you for your time today. Talk a bit about your radio program and how people can follow you there. 
Absolutely. So the radio show is on Sirius XM channel 132. It's called Dr. Dawn on Careers. It's live every Thursday at noon Eastern. So you can certainly call me there and ask me any questions. Of course, we podcast that as well. So you can listen to old episodes on, on iTunes and Google Play. Dawn, hey, thank you for your time today. Great success to you. I appreciate your investment and all of our listeners and viewers. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for your time as well. If you're not subscribing to Franklin Covey's podcast, you can receive it each week via email and a newsletter. Visit franklincovey.com. Click on the subscribe button every Tuesday morning at six o'clock Eastern time in the US. You can receive the newsletter that has both the video and audio interview as well as a blog post written by me and a downloadable tool from Franklin Covey's vast tool chest. And we'll see you back here next week for another conversation on leadership. (laughs) 